Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. When New Mexico State University student Liet Martinez applied for and got accepted into a national student exchange program at a university in Indiana, she thought she was signing up for a life-changing experience. Instead, it was life-ending. In April of 2008, Liette Martinez was brutally stabbed to death in her on-campus apartment-style dorm, leaving her roommates and the entire campus community in shock and terror. This episode is titled, A Deadly Dispute. So without further ado, let's get started. Nicole Martinez, lovingly and more commonly known as Lola by her friends and family, was born on September 22, 1985, in Silver City, New Mexico, to her parents, Gabriel and Geraldine Martinez. And being their one and only child, she was the absolute apple of her parents' eyes. Growing up, Lola became interested in cheerleading, joining the cheer squad in middle school and the palm squad in high school. She was described as quirky and fun, and she had a unique personality. For example, Rebecca Estrada, Lola's grandmother, recalled the moment when Lola decided she wanted to go by Lola instead of Liette. Rebecca said, quote, Liette changed her name because she didn't like when people mispronounced her name, so she decided she was going to name herself Lola, end quote. Lola graduated in 2004 from Mayfield High School in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and after going off to college, she discovered her true passion of graphic and digital design. While at NMSU, New Mexico State University, which is also located in Las Cruces, Lola chose to major in graphic design, and she found community in a group of like-minded peers when she joined the Digital Art Club. But art and design wasn't just a hobby or passion for Lola. She was incredibly skilled at it too. So much so that during her sophomore year, she decided to apply for a national student exchange program through NMSU. According to the NMSU website, the program gives students an opportunity to spend a semester or an academic year at another institution of higher education in the United States. However, the students still pay NMSU tuition. The website states that the program is, quote, a great way to explore a different educational environment, such as private liberal arts colleges, historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, NCAA Division I schools, 
universities in urban settings, French-speaking or Spanish-speaking universities, and more. Through the program, Lola was accepted to Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. I know that's a mouthful, so we will just call it IPFW for the remainder of the episode. So, during the fall 2007 semester, Lola packed up her things and moved over 1,500 miles across the country to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Even though she would be far away from the only life she had ever known, leaving her friends, family, and her beloved dog Napoleon behind, she was prepared for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to study and learn more about visual communication and graphic design. When Lola arrived at the place she would call home for the next school year, she was placed into an apartment-style dormitory on campus, where she lived with three other roommates, Shasta Meyer, Mandy Hake, and Tanzania Morris. Each had their own room, but they shared a common area, a kitchen, and two bathrooms between the four of them. For the first several months and into the spring semester, things were going well for Lola, and all the roommates for that matter. At least three of them started bonding right off the bat, including Lola, Shasta, and Tanzania. Shasta explained on an episode of Investigation Discovery's Murder Loves Company that Mandy wasn't as close as the other three because she was in and out a lot and often was away visiting her boyfriend. So she just didn't form as much of a roommate bond as the other three did. And although Lola posted to her MySpace page that she was missing her friends, family, and little dog Napoleon, she was excelling in the exchange program and enjoying the learning experience. She was also meeting new friends and forming new relationships with both her roommates as well as others on campus, too. According to the episode of Murder Loves Company, Lola started working as a server at Bandito's, a local restaurant. That's where she met a guy named Brandon York, who also worked at the restaurant. And soon, the two started dating. Shasta explained that all of the roommates had friends and boyfriends who would come in and out of the apartment, including Lola's boyfriend, Brandon. But none of the roommates had any problems with one another having visitors because they were all good at ensuring nobody was overstaying their welcome. That is, until April of 2008, when Tanzania asked if her mother could stay with them for a little while. Shasta said, quote, Tanzania, she wanted her mom, Tina, to come stay. She wanted to talk to her. She wanted to spend time with her. They didn't really get to do that a lot. That's her mom. Of course, why would we mind? End quote. But the roommates only said yes because they thought it was a temporary arrangement that 36-year-old Tina Morris would just be visiting for a few days. Sergeant Kenneth Clement with the Fort Wayne Police Department said, quote, Tina was going to stay on the sofa within the living room, and it was originally just for a night or two, end quote. But when a couple of nights turned into a couple of weeks, tensions started rising among the roommates. Tina Morris was starting to wear out her welcome. So, Shasta recalled, she and Lola went out for pizza to discuss the mom-roommate situation, and they decided they needed to have an honest talk with Tanzania about her mom. A short time later, they had the difficult conversation with Tanzania, and she was receptive. She seemed to understand their concerns, and she told them that her mom had a bus ticket and would be leaving soon in the next few days. Unfortunately, though, the next few days would turn into their worst nightmare. On the night of April 17, 2008, Tanzania, her mother Tina, and Lola all sat down to watch a movie. It was a weekly thing that the roommates did to socialize, like they would all gather in the living room for a movie night once a week. While Shasta normally would have been watching the movie with them, 
she decided to head to sleep early on this particular night. She explained, quote, I wasn't a part of the movie night. I had class the next morning, so I skipped out on the movie night and went to bed. Mandy wasn't there that night, end quote. During the movie, though, Tanzania started asking a lot of questions. You know, just questions about the movie, like, why did they do that? Why did they go in there? Who's that? Who's that person? Which became somewhat annoying to Lola. So eventually, Lola said something to her, like, hey, can you just be quiet and watch it? Like, you know, let's just watch the movie and find out. We can talk about it afterward, which is a totally normal thing to do. And honestly, (laughs) y'all, I've been the one to ask too many questions during a movie or a show, and my friends have definitely told me the same thing. So I get it. But here's the thing. After this, the vibe and the mood in the room shifted, which bothered Lola enough that it made her want to leave. So after the movie was over, she met up with her boyfriend, Brandon York. Brandon explained, quote, Lola was feeling very uncomfortable, so she came over and was like so relieved to be out of the apartment. She expressed being sad and upset. She said the tension in this apartment is very awkward right now, end quote. After spending a couple hours with Brandon, Lola decided to head back to her apartment and call it a night. By now, it was between 1 and 1.30 in the morning on April 18th, 2008. Now, brace yourselves, because this is where the story takes a dark turn. About 10 hours later, on Friday, April 18th, Shasta returned to the apartment-style dorm at around 11.40 a.m. after finishing up with class. Shasta explained that it was just another normal day for her. She was on the phone with her boyfriend while she fumbled around in her bag to retrieve her keys. When she finally got the door open and stepped inside, she headed straight toward her room. She said, quote, I had chips in my room that I needed to put away, so I walked out, and when I went to put my chips away in the pantry, that's when I first saw blood. I just remember being confused and not understanding why there was blood on the pantry door, end quote. So yeah, you heard all that right. Shasta came in, and she noticed that there was red substance on the pantry door, which to her looked like blood. But that wasn't the only place Shasta saw blood, though. As she went around the apartment in a panic, calling out her roommate's names, she saw more blood on the walls and in the bathroom, and her heart sunk to the bottom of her chest when she spotted Lola lying on the floor. Lola, too, was covered in blood. Shasta explained, quote, I instantly got down on the ground next to her and kind of shook her and tried to call out her name, and I got no response. I remember exactly how her face was, and her hair was just across her face, and it looked wet. End quote. As soon as it registered with Shasta that Lola was unresponsive, she raced out of the apartment and across the hall to a neighbor who called police. Shasta, with tears streaming down her face, said, quote, I don't remember why I didn't dial 911 myself. I was in too much of a panic. I was in too much of a shock, and that was just my instinct, to run out of there and get help. I'm still shaking. I'm still trying to process what happened. End quote. When paramedics arrived, it was too late. Lola had succumbed to her injuries and was pronounced dead on the scene. According to a coroner's report, Lola bled to death after being stabbed multiple times. Sergeant Clement and a deputy coroner were some of the first to arrive at the scene after the paramedics. Clement explained that they almost immediately noticed several stab wounds to the left side of her neck and shoulder, and the knife used to do it was lying on the ground near her body. It was a kitchen knife with an 8-inch blade. 
and the force used to kill Lola was so violent that the knife was now bent at a 90-degree angle and the handle was broken. In addition to the stab wounds, investigators also noticed that Lola's skin appeared to be burned as well. But perhaps what stood out the most to investigators was that the killer hadn't bothered to clean up. Whoever did this was messy and was not concerned with trying to cover up the crime. Sergeant Clement explained, quote, We noticed all kinds of blood on Lola's doorframe, and on the wall by the door, there was a lot of blood smear and possible prints that might be within that blood. So swabs were collected from the blood in the bathrooms. Again, whose blood we were looking at, we weren't real sure of at that point in time, end quote. As investigators began processing the crime scene and looking into who could have done this, university officials at IPFW had to alert the community of the potential danger, since, you know, they had discovered a murdered student on campus. First, IPFW initiated a campus-wide lockdown, and then they utilized a recently purchased emergency alert system where they sent out a campus-wide email at around 1 p.m. on April 18th. The email notified students of a death on campus, which they said was being looked into. Two hours later, university officials sent out another email at 3 p.m., this time informing the campus community that the death was being investigated as a homicide and that all afternoon and evening classes were canceled. Shasta said, quote, It was scary. All the campus was in shock. Everyone felt nervous. We didn't know all the information or all the details. We were afraid for our own lives. End quote. But while investigators got to work in Indiana, police in Las Cruces, New Mexico, had to reach out to Lola's parents, Gabe and Geraldine Martinez, to notify them of their daughter's murder. Geraldine recalled the day the police showed up at her house. She said, quote, that day, April 18, 2008, I was vacuuming at the time that the officers came to my door, and my thought was, okay, what's going on? When I saw the chaplain, I knew something was wrong, and when they sat me down, then that's when they proceeded to ask me if I had a daughter attending Indiana Purdue-Fort Wayne. I was here by myself, kind of went a little crazy, but I had to compose myself because I knew I had to call my husband, end quote. Gabe Martinez, Lola's father, was at work at the time. As he relived the day he found out his one and only daughter had been murdered, he said through teary eyes, quote, My wife called me and she said, hey, you need to get home. She wouldn't tell me what was going on. On the way home, I called her again. I need to know what happened. I insisted, and she told me. I just lost it, end quote. Meanwhile, investigators back in Indiana began looking at the case from every angle as to what could have possibly happened. They focused on the two biggest and most obvious questions of, one, who did this, and two, why? District Attorney Karen Richards said, quote, When you see that many stab wounds and in those particular circumstances, then you know this was a personal crime. Who were her good friends? Did she have any enemies? Was she dating anybody? Had she broken up with anybody? End quote. Investigators first focused on Lola's three other roommates, since they're the ones who had the easiest access to the apartment. Right off the bat, they discovered that Lola had no enemies or grudges or disagreements with anybody. She was well-liked at IPFW, and she was enjoying her time there. The first roommate they spoke to was Shasta, since she was the one who found Lola inside. However, Shasta was so distraught and devastated that she was unable to provide many answers, and understandably so. 
She said, quote, there's a lot of things that I don't remember and trying to talk about what just happened, that's almost nearly impossible. I mean, I'm still shaking. I'm still trying to process what happened. I remember them asking me, were boyfriends there? Were guy friends there? At that point, there's suspicion about everyone that had been in and out of our apartment, end quote. Next, investigators contacted Mandy Hake, the fourth roommate who often didn't stay there. They spoke with Mandy over the phone, who seemed very upset and couldn't believe Lola was dead or that anybody would want to harm her. But Mandy informed investigators that she was out of town. She had actually arrived in Michigan late Thursday night, and she told them that she had even left a note for Lola in their shared bathroom before she left. That note was later found in Lola's bathroom, exactly where Mandy said it was, which pretty much backed up her alibi. The last roommate investigators spoke with was Tanzania. They had actually taken both Shasta and Tanzania to the police station for questioning at the same time, though they spoke with them in different rooms. Similar to Shasta, Tanzania couldn't offer much information either. But she did give them one piece of information that stuck out to them. Tanzania is the one who informed detectives that Lola had a boyfriend, Brandon York, you know, the guy she worked with at Bandito's. So Brandon quickly became a primary person of interest. But when they reached out to Brandon, he provided some information that would send them right back to Tanzania. Brandon explained to detectives how Lola had been watching a movie the night before with Tanzania and her mom, Tina, and how tense the room had become after Lola made the comment to Tanzania. So detectives brought Tanzania in for additional questioning, and they focused on the alleged argument that took place just hours before Lola's death. Tanzania, however, downplayed the whole thing. In fact, she said she didn't take it offensively at all. She told detectives that she does have a tendency to talk and ask too many questions during movies, so she wasn't the least bit upset about Lola's comment. Tanzania swore to detectives that she and Lola had a good relationship. And she told them it was actually her relationship with her mother that was strained. After talking with Tanzania for a second time, investigators learned that Tanzania and her mother had not been close. In fact, Tanzania stayed with other relatives most of her life while she was growing up, and her mother had just recently come back into her life. Which, from what I gather, is one of the reasons why Tina Morris was staying there in the first place. I guess she was trying to mend the relationship and bond with her daughter. But Tanzania also told investigators that she couldn't get a hold of her mom. Morris wasn't answering her calls or texts, and Tanzania said she wasn't even sure where her mom was. So, with this new information, investigators couldn't help but wonder if Morris, too, could be in danger. Or, perhaps, was she the perpetrator? After 24 hours into the investigation, Lola's parents passed on some critical information to police in Fort Wayne. They informed detectives that Lola had a car with her in Indiana. According to an Associated Press article in the Albuquerque Journal, Lola had a 2006 Mazda sedan, and the car was usually parked on campus at Lola's apartment. But on April 19, 2008, the next day after Lola was murdered, police searched the campus and were not able to locate Lola's car anywhere. Sergeant Clement said, quote, Now that leads me to believe that whoever did this to Lola took her car. So was this done for the car? Was it murder done for financial gain? So we wanted to look for that car right away, end quote. Immediately after this, Fort Wayne police issued an APB, an all-points bulletin, for Lola's car, which wouldn't be too hard to find if it were still in Indiana, 
since it had New Mexico license plates. Meanwhile, investigators learned that only certain people with a special key fob could even gain access to the apartment. So police contacted campus security about getting a list of all people who used their key fobs to enter the dorm that day. Unfortunately, however, Sergeant Clement discovered that there were errors with the system and they could not retrieve that information. Luckily, though, just 30 hours into the investigation, they were able to access surveillance footage, which helped them narrow down the suspect list. DA Karen Richards said, quote, Anytime you have any kind of surveillance footage, what that does is it gives you a time frame. It's extremely helpful, end quote. And that's exactly what the surveillance footage did. It helped investigators establish a timeline of not only when people were coming and going from the apartment on the day of the murder, but also who exactly was coming and going from the apartment. After carefully watching the surveillance footage, investigators determined that Mandy Hake, the fourth roommate, was never seen on camera the day of the murder. That not only solidified her alibi, but it also ruled her out completely. Brandon York also was never seen on camera that day, so he too was ruled out. That only left the two other roommates, Shasta and Tanzania, as well as Tanzania's mom, Tiana Morris, as the possible suspects. They were the only ones coming and going from that apartment on the day Lola was murdered. According to the episode of Murder Loves Company, Shasta was the first one to make an appearance on the surveillance cameras on the morning of the murder. That's when she was leaving for class. Shasta later said, quote, I had class the morning that everything happened. I just didn't feel that well, and I did not want to go to class that day. But I don't know, something just made me feel like I had to get up and go, end quote. The next person to exit the apartment was Tanzania, as she too headed to class. So that only left Lola and Tina Morris inside the apartment during the time frame that Lola was killed. On that surveillance footage, Morris can be seen stepping outside of the apartment at around 9.17 a.m. on April 18th. She can be seen with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and both hands in her jacket pocket. A few minutes later, at 9.24 a.m., Morris can be seen going back inside after she had smoked the cigarette. Then, about an hour later, Morris can be seen leaving the apartment again, but this time, her behavior raised some red flags with investigators. Morris had changed her shirt, and she was now carrying a bag. She can then be seen going toward the elevator, where she waited impatiently for it to arrive on the fourth floor of the building, which is where their apartment was located. According to Sergeant Clement, Morris looked as if she did not want to be there, and like she was trying to get away as quickly as possible. After becoming too impatient for the elevator, Morris can be seen exiting through the stairwell. After this, at 11.38 a.m., Shasta can be seen coming back to the apartment from class. Less than 20 minutes later, at 11.53 a.m., Shasta can be seen on the surveillance video racing out of the apartment and across the hall to the neighbor's door. On the video, y'all, it is so plain to see how panicked and distraught Shasta was, you know, after discovering the lifeless body of her friend and roommate, Lola Martinez. Needless to say, there was no longer a question of whether Morris was the perpetrator or not. Spoiler alert, she did it. And a statewide manhunt, or person hunt in this case, for Morris quickly ensued. And within two days of the murder, police had located both Morris and Lola's car. But it was Morris herself who called police to turn herself in. Sergeant Clement explained, quote, Sunday morning, I get a call on my cell phone, and it's Tina Morris. And she tells me that she is in Indianapolis. 
she heard that we were looking for her. Immediately, myself and another detective got permission from command, got a marked squad car, and we took the two-hour drive to Indianapolis, where we did find Tina Morris sitting in a park. As soon as I met up with her in the park, I wanted to get a quick statement as to what she was going to say occurred, end quote. Right away, Morris admitted that she killed Lola and took her car. In fact, Lola's Mazda sedan was parked on the street next to the park bench where Morris was sitting. But that's not all she did. It would later be revealed that Morris also took Lola's credit cards and used them for her little getaway spree along the way. After this, police apprehended Morris and drove her the two hours back to Fort Wayne so they could conduct a formal interview with her at the police station. During the drive, they found out that it was actually Tanzania who encouraged Morris to turn herself in. She had called her mom and was like, please tell me you didn't do this. And when the inevitable was revealed, Tanzania told her mom that she needed to call police and tell them exactly what had happened. She needed to turn herself in for her unthinkable crime. Once at the station, Morris proceeded to tell police that she had been upset about the comment Lola made to Tanzania during the movie night. During the interview, Morris said, quote, I wanted to say something that night to her, you know, stop talking to my daughter. And Tanzania was like, Mama, just leave it alone, end quote. But apparently, according to Morris, she stewed all through the night and into the next morning about this comment and how she felt like Lola had disrespected her daughter. So after everyone left the apartment for the day, Morris said she decided to confront Lola about the whole thing. But at first, Morris tried to say that Lola actually attacked her and that she simply defended herself. But uh, Sergeant Clement was not buying her version of events for one second, so he pressed her for more. Eventually, the truth came out. Lola never attacked Morris, but Morris definitely attacked Lola. According to court documents, on April 18, 2008, Morris had gone into Lola's room to confront her about the comment Lola had made during the movie. This confrontation became heated, which quickly escalated to an altercation. Morris said she grabbed a knife and she and Lola fought over it before Morris eventually overpowered Lola and stabbed her in the neck. Morris then took a pan of hot water that had been boiling on the stove and threw it on Lola, after which she used the pan as a weapon and hit Lola in the face. Morris then proceeded to stab Lola until she eventually bled out and died. When it was all said and done, Morris took Lola's keys and credit cards and fled to Indianapolis in Lola's car. By April 22, 2008, Morris was being held without bond in the Allen County Jail on charges of murder and auto theft. A few days later, on Thursday, April 24th, Morris was formally charged with one count of murder, one count of felony murder, as well as robbery and auto theft. According to an article in the Times, if convicted, Morris would face a maximum sentence of 88 years in prison. Now, while prosecutors were preparing a case for trial, officials at IPFW began reviewing its housing policies. It would never be revealed why Morris took up residence at her daughter's dorm on campus for so long, other than the fact that she wanted to try and reconnect with her estranged daughter. Regardless of the reason, though, IPFW couldn't let anything like that happen again. I mean, Morris had technically been staying there illegally. So, according to an Associated Press article in the Indianapolis Star, the university immediately began looking into hiring more resident assistants, as well as placing monitors at the entrances of the apartment-style dorms on campus. 
They also vowed to increase campus police patrols and review the 303 security cameras that were secured inside and outside of the buildings. Apparently, at least eight of the 303 cameras were not working the day Lola was killed. Additionally, school officials began looking at and revising their guest policy. At the time, the policy stated that overnight guests of the opposite sex were not allowed at all, and same-sex guests, aka Tina Morris, could only stay for a maximum of 72 hours. Vice Chancellor for Fiscal Affairs at the time, Walt Branson, admitted that the guest policies in place in 2008 were difficult to enforce. Branson also said that the school wanted to look into changing their emergency alert system because it did not perform well when alerting students about the murder. He said, quote, the system did not work quickly enough for a campus our size, end quote. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out that this was only a year after the Virginia Tech massacre, and it was a different landscape and culture for higher education. Shootings on campus, whether mass shootings or isolated incidents, were purposefully not publicized more than they had to be. In the wake of Virginia Tech, shootings of any kind on campus were bad press, and colleges and universities would do everything they could to keep information from getting out. Okay, so moving on. The next movement in the case didn't come until June of 2008. According to the Albuquerque Journal, Morris's defense attorney, Anthony Churchwood, informed the court that he was looking into using an insanity defense. So a judge ordered both a psychiatrist and a psychologist to separately examine Morris and evaluate her mental health you know, to determine if she could have been mentally insane at the time of the murder. Well, I guess the defense didn't get the results they were looking for because two months later, in August of 2008, Morris entered a plea deal. She agreed to plead guilty to the murder of Lola Martinez if prosecutors would drop the charges of felony murder, robbery, and auto theft, which would also drop the maximum prison sentence down to 60 years from the original 88. The prosecution agreed as did Lola's family. Geraldine Martinez said, quote, We ended up doing a plea bargain with Tina Morris. We didn't want to go to trial. We didn't want to hear the graphic details of what transpired in that dorm room. We didn't want to go through that. Now, as for forgiving her for what she's done, I'm slowly getting there. I have to for myself, not for her, but for myself, end quote. On August 20th, 2008, Tina Morris, a mother of three grown children, wiped away tears as a judge sentenced her to the 60 years behind bars. According to an article in the Times, Churchwood later stood outside the courtroom and told Morris's father, Henry Brewer, that it was quote-unquote in her best interests to take the plea rather than going to trial. Churchwood said Morris's decision to not only take Lola's car after the murder, but also drive it all the way to Indianapolis and use Lola's credit cards well, that made the whole not guilty by reason of insanity super difficult to prove. After the sentencing, the Times reported, relatives of both Lola and Morris hugged and wept together in the courtroom. And Geraldine, at the time of sentencing, well, she definitely wasn't ready to forgive just yet. Geraldine looked at Tina Morris and said, quote, Tina, we do not hate you, but we ask you why. We cannot forgive you for the pain you have caused our family and your daughter. End quote. And Lola's family also knew that no prison sentence would ever be able to change what happened. Rebecca Estrada, Lola's grandmother, said, quote, Nothing will ever bring Lola back. It doesn't matter how many years a person gets, it's not going to bring that person you love so much back. End quote. 
According to an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Chancellor Michael Wartell for IPFW noted that Lola's murder was the first violent crime on campus in its 40-year history. And he urged parents and students not to worry. He said, quote, I don't think you can look at life anywhere in this country and say that anywhere is totally secure, end quote. Now, while Wartale sentiments may be true, it doesn't take away from the fact that a talented young lady lost her life under extremely unfortunate circumstances, all of which could have been prevented. That's the hard part about this case. A college dorm is supposed to be safe and secure, a place where students can feel at home away from home. So I urge all of us to do better as higher education professionals, as parents of college students, and as college students. I urge us all to see something, say something. Students, if somebody's mom or dad or friend or brother or sister or whoever it may be is staying in your dorm for an extended period of time, tell the dorm staff because that's not normal and it's most likely considered illegal squatting. Parents, if you hear something, say something. Call the school. Trust me, we get lots of calls from parents. And higher ed professionals, please, we must do better at being more aware of situations. We must not only implement policies that prevent this stuff from happening, but we also have to strictly enforce and follow those policies. We must be proactive instead of reactive. So hopefully, what can be prevented will be prevented. Lola Martinez was a bright and talented young woman who had her whole life ahead of her, and she was well on her way to graduating with a bachelor's degree in graphic design from New Mexico State, where I'm confident she would have had a long, successful career. For now, though, her family rests assured that others can accomplish what Lola never got the chance to. You see, after her death, her family set up a scholarship fund in Lola's honor, a fund in which they asked people to donate to in lieu of sending flowers to her memorial. According to the NMSU website, Gabriel and Geraldine Martinez and the New Mexico State University Foundation created the Liette Martinez Memorial Endowed Scholarship. The website states that the scholarship is dedicated to Liette Martinez, a student in graphic design, and it's offered to an art major whose emphasis is in graphic design. The scholarship goes to a junior or senior who does not qualify for financial aid and has a minimum of a 3.0 GPA. The scholarship requires submission of a portfolio with 10 images and a short essay on their career goals. Before I officially wrap up this episode, I'd like to leave you with some words and memories from Lola's family, who so deeply miss their precious girl. Rebecca Estrada, who shared a special bond with her granddaughter, said, quote, I know that when I'm missing her, I talk to her and I just say, Miha, just be with me. I want to feel you, and I can feel her right now. I feel this warm feeling that I get through my body, and I can feel it right now, end quote. And Lola's mother, Geraldine, said, quote, her laugh, her smile, she would come in and like snuggle up and purr like a kitten and then hug me real tight. It's those little quirks that she did that I miss. Those days are hard. Those days are hard, but I pull myself up and I have to move forward because I hear Liette saying, it's okay, mom, it's okay, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 69. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. 
That's also where you can find a direct link to my Patreon. Each month, I drop a bonus episode exclusive to my patrons and subscribers. So be sure to check that out for some extra campus crime stories. Okay, y'all. Well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in one week for the next Chronicle. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.